We have so far discussed four of the various psukim which Chazal employed to introduce their teaching of Megillah's Esther. Chazal sensed that the Megillah, though very, very multi-layered, still contained several hidden messages which weren't overt or even implied by the text itself. And those messages could better be appreciated by associating the Megillah with other psukim in Tanakh. So Chazal would introduce their teaching of Megillah's Esther by citing other psukim in Tanakh. So for example, Shmuel would begin by citing a pasuk in the Tochacha, which demonstrated that even after Am Yisrael was sent into Galus, they still retained their status as the chosen people, perhaps a challenge of Haman, assuming the people were chosen at Harsinai, but maybe they had forfeited that identity. And the Tochacha reminds us, Even when you do fail me and betray me, I will still not discard you or abandon you. And Haman's challenge was rebuffed. Um, a second Pasuk, a Pasuk which was cited to remind us by Rabbi Hanina Bar Ada, to remind us that part of the drama was not just the genocide threat in Shushan, but the base Hamikdash lying empty, or the foundations of the Mikdash were already laid, and there were opponents of the Beis HaMikdash in Israel, and those same opponents, the children of Haman, traveled to Shushan and imposed the very existence of the Jewish people. It was once seen as a geopolitical threat. It was now realized as anti-Semitism in its full vulgar and crass and merciless fashion. Um, we took a look at the Psokim, which described Haman as the Rosh HaKonim, this was the first time that money was paid for genocide, and it reflected the overall ethic in Shushan, that for money you could have anything, because Shushan was very liberal and pluralistic, and there was no cohesive ethic of race, culture, religion, and money rose to the top, and Haman highlighted the celebrity of money and of affluence by paying for his genocide. And then a passage which Rav quoted to demonstrate the suddenness of it all, that this was something which happened quickly, Overnight, the authority had been given to Haman. The genocidal plan had been hatched. Overnight, the letter carriers were running and hustling out to all 127 provinces. Perhaps one of the most difficult psukim, this is part five of the eight-part series, perhaps one of the most difficult psukim to understand is a pasuk which Rav used to introduce, or excuse me, Rishlakish used to introduce his teaching. The Gemara in Megillah actually quotes this pasuk. This isn't taken from the Medrash. It's on Daf Yud Aleph. Reish Lakish pasach la pischa b'hai parsha. He began teaching by quoting the following pasuk in Mishlei. Okay, he quotes a pasuk in Mishlei, which he then associates with a pasuk in Daniel. So what does the pasuk in Mishlei say? It talks about two wild animals screaming and roaring. Ari noheim, a lion roars. Dov shokek, a bear uh, also roars or brays. Moshel Rashal Amdal. Similarly, an evil person imposes his will on a weak and indigent nation. So this describes the wrath, the fury of an evil, wicked king being imposed upon a vulnerable, defenseless people in the metaphor of a roaring lion and a braying bear. Ari Nohain Dov Shokik. Well, immediately, Rav associates this Pasuk in Mishlei with Daniel's visions. Daniel has a vision of four creatures emerging from the sea. And according to Chazal, these four creatures represent four different empires which visit our earth until Am Yisrael's sovereignty and the utopian vision of a kingdom of God is restored. The first animal is a lion, 
and a lion represented Nebuchadnezzar. The second animal was a bear, the third animal was an eagle, and the fourth animal was much more mystical. The bear, according to Chazal, coming right after the lion, the dove, the bear quoted in the Pasuk of Mishle, associated with the lion, they're both roaring or braying. In Sefer Daniel, the bear, which emerges from the ocean, is assumed by Chazal to be a reference to Parasumadai, the empire of Parasumadai, which hosted, hosted politically, historically, the events of Megillah Sester. Why is the empire of Paras Umadai compared to a bear? The empire of the Vuchanetzar compared to a lion, that makes sense. They ruled the entire Mediterranean crescent. They, they extended it with the king of the jungle, the king of the beasts. But of all the animals to compare Paras Umadai to a bear, so to solve this, Reish Lakish, after quoting the Pasuk in Mishlei, the moral issue of the bear and the lion imposing their will on a vulnerable people, and after quoting the visions of Daniel in Barak Zion, he cites Rabbi Yosef. Rabbi Yosef says, why were the Parsim compared to a bear? So he cites four elements of the Parsim. Sha'ochlem v'shosim kidov, they ate and drank like a bear. Misorbalim basar kidov, they were very heavy, bears are very heavy animals. It's ironic because they move very quickly. I'll talk about this later, but they're heavyish and they're actually clumsyish animals. They, the way their their feet structure, the skeleton structure. Megadlim sear kidov. So the Parsim ate and drank like bears. They were large like bears. They grew hair like bears. And they didn't rest. They didn't have any peace as bears don't. And somehow, these four traits were similar to the empire of Paras, and therefore they're compared to a bear. And when Daniel sees the bear, it's referring to the empire, the kingdom of Paras. It's a little difficult to see the bear-like qualities, on the surface at least, in the Malchus Paras. The eating and drinking, that's obvious. The emphasis on Mishnah, the emphasis on parties, which already predates Megillah Esther. If you look at, say, for Daniel, it's very evident in this entire era, this entire milieu, Belshazzar was actually from Bavel, but the transition from Malchus Bavel, Belshazzar, the son of Ruchanetzar, seeing the hand on the wall, that apparition, that, that vision of the writing hand on the wall, ceding his Malchus to Daryavash, the first king of Madai, who then cedes his kingdom to the first king, Koresh of Paras. The other three traits are a little more difficult. They don't have any peace. A bear, interestingly enough, doesn't have its own territory. It can't be at peace by staking out its territory as other animals can and do. Bears live in caves and they forage and they run and they, they run in and they run out. Bears actually are very ferocious, but they always have these visions of bears running in and running out. They don't stand and defend their territories. They're not the same bears we see in movies and, and cartoons, but they're, they're foragers. They surprise attacks, but they're constantly on the move. And it's not just they don't have territory, but they don't even have time. They're diurnal and they have to forage and hunt in the day and in the night, this migration, or at least with polar bears, that it's necessary to... A lot of animals have migration, but certainly not animals that are alpha predators in their area. We'd expect a bear to be an alpha predator to be able to defend its own territory. Um, the, the kingdom of Paras well, didn't seem to have a ethnic regional base. Shushan was the capital, but even Shushan was cosmopolitan and international and multiracial. Didn't, it was a kingdom without a base, and also a kingdom not just without a regional base, 
but it was a kingdom that experienced a lot of political upheaval and and political intrigue and they entered the historical stage, they exited the historical stage very quickly. Remember, Koresh assumes the throne, and he's really the first Persian king, because his predecessor, Daryavash, is a Median king, his Madai. Koresh is the first Melech Paras, and he assumes the throne 18 years before the Beis HaMikdash is complete, and Ezra leads the Jews back to Eretz Yisrael. And very quickly, it's unclear exactly when, but very quickly, Paras and Madai fades from the historical stage, and the dominant culture becomes Yavan, leading up to the face-off of Hanukkah. So it's a very, very quick process of their ascending and of their fading from view, the rise of the Persian Paras, Malchus Paras, and the descent and the decline. And throughout the Megillah, we just see constant political upheaval, whether it's the the deposing of Vashti, the um, empowering of Haman, quickly, quickly overturned within days shifting the authority to Mordechai and Esther. And this is not just a, a local Jewish transition, but Mordechai is placed over base Haman, given the same authority that Haman is originally given. Um, even in the prophecy of Daniel, when Daniel uh, witnesses these, these beasts, so this, the, um, the second beast, of course, remember the first beast is the lion, the second beast is the bear. Okay, um... So, the second beast that comes out, which is the bear, which refers to Malchus Paras, I'm not going to read it because it's Aramaic, it's very heavy Aramaic, it looks like a bear, and in its mouth are three pieces, uh, three bones, three, three body parts, and Chazal see this as a reference to, to three political uh, rivals of Malchus Paras who were constantly rebelling and, and bristling at Ahasuerus's authority and intern, internal struggle, perhaps not really civil war, but internal wars. So um, the, the instability, the, the lack of peace, the lack of political tranquility, is very, very clearly associated with Paras. Um, and I mentioned the quickness by which they ascend. The, the fat, Mr. Baldim Basar, the, the, the bear is very fat, very heavy, you get the sense this is a very heavy empire that stretches across 127 provinces. This is a large empire. It isn't regionally limited. The growing hair is a little more difficult. It's a little more difficult to see the metaphoric meaning of bears having hair and fur and what exactly. We don't see any record of the Persians being very hairy or being Nazirim or anything of that, of that nature. In any event, um, this was... Rav, this is Rishlakish's purpose, Rishlakish Yosef didn't really talk about Megillah Esther, but talked about Malchus Paras in general, and Rishlakish adopted Rabbi Yosef's Pasuk in order to, um, in order to explain Megillah Esther. What's the purpose of this bare imagery? So, in part, it's, it's really self-sufficient that Am Yisrael was to realize that history was moving very quickly. And these visions of Daniel that describe these large empires visiting the earth and, and ceding authority to subsequent empires, you may have the sense that this would be drawn out over centuries, if not decades. And indeed, unfortunately, because we blew the opportunity to return to Israel in mass, only 42,000 people returned, and as I'll speak of the second base, Hamikdash holding the promise of Mashiach, but we failed to meet that potential. 
But history is really accelerating, and at its end point, history does accelerate, as it did in Mitzrayim, Machadosh Baruch Hu, as we feel it is now, and was accelerating then, and Amisol should just recognize that this was not just a miracle in a vacuum, but this was the passing of an empire, another empire was visiting, and history was on the move, and this was an opportunity to participate in that historical change. And perhaps the next animals that would visit would, would be quicker. Um, I, I, I misspoke, by the way. The, the third animal was not really an eagle. It was, it was uh, more similar to uh, a leopard with, with eagle-like wings, but it could have been just as quick. So, Rosh Lakish, by drawing attention to Daniel's dreams, by introducing his teaching of Megillus Esther, by telling his Talmudim, remember the dreams of Daniel. Remember Daniel's dreaming, and the second animal was a bear, right after the lion. Just keep in mind, the bear referred to Malchus Paras Umadai, but particularly Paras, and this is part of a larger historical calculus. It wasn't just an isolated miracle of saving Am Yisrael and giving them a chance to recognize that Kodesh Baruch Hu's hidden hand. History is on the move. Perm was part of that history. And the historical opportunities were not fully maximized. So there was a historical message, just like Shmuel was trying to draw attention, that there were larger historical forces at work. It wasn't just genocide, which we were saved from, but there were historical issues on hand. That's part of Rishlakish's strategy. I think there's also moral messages by seeing Malchus Paras as a bear. Again, it wasn't just the, the face-off with Haman or the broader historical consciousness, but the larger culture of Paras, the larger culture of Shushan, represented certain values, certain values which could be understood in the metaphor of a bear and the bear's tendencies, and those values were dangerous to the Jewish society and the Jewish community. Because remember, Chazal told us that Shimon told us Talmidim, why were the Jewish people punished? Why were they threatened so severely? And he answered because, or students answered because they were, they participated in this meal, and it can't just be the meal, it has to be the meal as a metaphor for participating in the culture, for lending themselves to the culture of Shushan and absorbing its messages as evidenced by the meal. So there's certain values on display in the city of Shushan, in the culture of Paras, which are bear-like, which can be seen in the metaphor of a bear. And by introducing the bear and comparing Malchus Paras to a bear, Reish Lakish was aiming to teach his students not just the lessons of history, but the lessons of morality, the lessons of religion. What exactly in a bear is similar to Shushan? So that's even more difficult. On the one hand, you could just see a bear as a gloss for just a wild, vulgar, hairy, carnivorous always eating, lack of culture, barbaric, vulgar. And there certainly is a vulgarity about the Parsim in Megillus Esther, a vulgarity that's expressed in the eating and the hedonism, a vulgarity that's expressed in the pornography, a vulgarity that's expressed in the bloodshed and hanging people on, on trees. Um, is a barbarism, and in fact, it's really the last, last hurrah for barbarism, <laughs> because the next kingdom which will visit the earth is the kingdom of Greece, of Yavon, and and they're the first culture to organize their world, to develop a political system and civilizations and science and reason and, and philosophy. And it posed a very different challenge to Judaism. Judaism had been warring with barbarism for decades, for centuries. The barbarism of Canaan, the cannibalism, the, the paganism. And all of a sudden, a whole new world is emerging. This was the last moment that we faced this barbaric, hedonistic, vulgar. 
So Rishlakish could have been sensing Megillah's Purim, Megillah's Esther, as a transition point in how Am Yisrael would have to face off. And it was a new challenge for Am Yisrael, because it's one thing to adopt Judaism and monotheism as a, as a hedge or as, as a wedge against barbarism. It's another thing when Yiddishkeit has to confront organized systems of enlightenment, of reason, of science. So it's a real transition point. But I think there's more. I think the eating and drinking of a bear, um, the, it's not hedonistic. A bear doesn't overeat because it's, it's a hedonist. The bear is an opportunistic feeder. A bear is very interesting despite its ferocity. It can't really tear into flesh as lions and leopards can. Its teeth aren't molded that way. Um, most of them, most much of their eating is herb- herbivorous. It eats plants and shoots and herb- herbs and greenery. Of course, polar bears eat fish exclusively because it doesn't live. It's adapted in order to eat fish because it doesn't live near vegetation. But most of the bear's diet is is vegetation, and most of the bear's eating is opportunistic. And there's a statement about opportunism as well because the Parsim were opportunistic politicians. We don't really see who deposed Belshazzar, who murders Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, leading the way for the Median and Persian empire, Madai Uparas, Paras Madai. According to Josephus, it was some slave that may have killed him when he was isolated that night after the hand writes on a wall. We don't really see Paras Madai emerging victorious and thereby assuming control. They just sense a vacuum and they, they take an opportunity of that vacuum. Um, but there's a sense of overeating. Not he- I mean, there is hedonism in Miguel's Esther, and that's on display overtly in the text of, of orgiastic, opulence, hedonism. But by citing a bear, I can't really see a bear as a hedonist. A bear doesn't sit and drink wine. A bear just eats at every opportunity. Uh, it needs to. It's an opportunistic feeder, by definition. And aside from the hedonism in Megillus Esther, there's just overeating, just eating for 180 days. I assume at a certain point, the, the hedonism dissolved and, and, it, and it was replaced by just, like I said, mishta day in, day out. There's something larger, I don't have time to describe it, but there's an overeating. Um, the bear is fat. And the Malchus Parasumada wasn't just fat, it was outsized, it was oversized. It was 127 provinces, and not just, but it spanned Mehod Ruviat Kush. They weren't localized. And the end of the Megillah Paragyot emphasizes that it was also covering certain islands, Al-Iyei Hayam. So it was oversized. And you sense the oversized nature of this empire in the, the, the um, uh, constant attempts to control this oversized empire. By law, the word das appears 18 times. And not just the word das, valid, tough, but there are other words that talk about gzera and punishments and the ring of the king. And you definitely get the sense that there's an attempt to create law, not just law, but procedure, procedure which is institutionalized architecturally, the inner chamber, the outer chamber, the base Hanashim, the base Hanashim Achitsonos, what are the laws, when does a woman come, when can she see the king, when can you not see the king. There's an elaborate system of law, of procedure, of protocol, of architecture, of, of bureaucracy. If you just look at Megillus Esther, it's an amazing, amazing expansion of governance from the solitary totalitarian rule of the Vuchanetzar 
to this incredible expansion, Achash Darpanim and Pachos and and Sarei Hamelech and Roepne Hamelech and advisors to the king and sub advisors and people who are in charge with with um, the base Hanashim. It's it's literally it's it's one of the shocking arresting parts of the Megillah. If you look carefully, the Shomrei Hasaf. The Shivas Hasarim, the Shomra Pilagshim, the Sarisei Hamelech, the Achashtarpanim, the Pachos. You get a sense that this is an empire that's too large to be controlled by an army, and it's interesting to see there are no armies on display, as you would expect from such a dominant empire. And in place of army, law, procedure, structure, architecture, regiment, bureaucracy, advisors, Congress, politicians which in a certain sense is refreshing. The people aren't murdered, but there's an attempt to institutionalize healthy communal behavior, common behavior. But on the one hand, there's a statement about an outsized bear. It's just too big for its own good. It can't, it can't support itself. Sometimes we take on too much for ourselves. We, we try to expand our personal lives, our interests, our performance, our multitasking, and it just gets too much for us. And the consequence of that is there needs to be an elaborate system of law, procedure, structure, bureaucracy. But it doesn't seem like any of these laws take into account moral issues and moral sensitivities. It's almost like a law without spirit. Law without reckoning the need for a person to see the king if he hasn't been called. Or the need for for people to be granted access access to inner chambers, to cut through red tape. The red tape here is extremely, extremely paralyzing. If they go through Hegai, Sris Hanashim, and Shomer Hanashim, and the inner chamber, the outer chamber, where do you eat, how do you eat, when the roles, the human spirit is crushed by the weight of law. And to a degree, that's why the upheaval, or the... The solution to all this is based on poor. Hashem Apurim is based on lotteries and fortune, the abolition of law, and of course, the introduction of moral spirit, in this case by Kaddish Baruch Hu, behind the scenes. There's an anti-law, anti-procedure, anti-protocol, when law becomes too oppressive and too stifling. And you get the sense that all this is necessary in the city of Shushan, in the empire of Paras, because there's this outsized nature that can't be controlled by an army, even if they had one. It's not just law, it's language and taxation and letter writing. Again, you see two things because of this bear. Number one, overambition. They want too much. They desire too much. They're eating too much. They're governing too much. You get a sense that if he contracted a little bit, his empire would be strengthened. Second of all, not just the danger of taking on too much, but the attempt to control by legislation and protocol rather than by common moral spirit or at the expense of moral spirit. And this somehow emerges from the image of a, a bear being outsized, being Mesur Balim Basar, Kidov, and maybe even the hair, maybe even the fur. If the fur connotes additional layer to the bear above its skin. You don't really see the bear. You're seeing the fur. You're seeing the hair. You're seeing the advisors, politicians, lobbyists, congressmen, senators, almost as if you don't really get to see the real animal itself. 
The final moral issue, which may be linked to the bare analogies, is just the lack of any peace. Elohim Menucha. And you get this sense by reading Miguel's Esther as well, carefully, that the pace is just so quick. Again, there's a lag in between Vashti's deposing and, and Esther's rise, but and between the parties and Esther's rise. But once Esther rises to the throne and Haman is appointed, and right away the ring is removed, the decrees are sent out, the letter writers are hustled out of town, quickly, three days of fasting, the, the, the decrees are overturned. And, but it's not just the pace that is reflected in the rhythm of this genocide and in the salvation of a Kurdish Baruch Hu, but it's also a pace that you sense in Shushan. It's, it's literally it's shocking when you think about it. Shushan is diurnal in the same way that the bears are. I mean, there's really no difference between night and day. You sense the action waits for nothing. By At night, the, there's, uh, there, uh, you sense that the the, the women were interviewed at night by Erev Hibav, Uboki Hishava. Now again, it's obvious because it's pornographic sexual interest, but there's a constant move and things are constantly moving. The, remember, the bear doesn't have its own home and its own area. It just has to hide in caves and, and hibernate and, and doesn't sleep in the same way when it's not hibernating. And you get a sense that there's a lack of pace. Just simply... You're constantly on the move, constantly doing things, constantly running. And that perhaps could be a moral message as well, that there needs to be doubt time, there needs to be minucha time. And, uh, and it's very clear that in the end of the Megillah, the day we choose this part, and this choice is with consistency, is not the day of the victory, but the day of the resting. It's not when the wars were fought. You'd, you'd think that the day the war was fought is the day that the Miracles should be celebrated, which would be the 13th in regular cities and the 14th in world cities. But it was pushed off a day. And the, and the day of celebration is not the day of military victory, but the day of menucha, the day of resting, the day of tranquility. The day. It also has a moral value. That there's also a historical issue of Ayar Menucha Kitov, getting back to Eretz Yisrael. But it's a fascinating, fascinating statement of Reish Lakish, comparing Malchus Paras to a bear pointing out four points of convergence between a bear and the Persian Empire. Reminding Am Yisrael that this was history on the move. The, the visions of Daniel were about to evolve, and this was the second empire. But it didn't seem like part of the historical, apocalyptic narrative. So a very quick empire. There weren't armies. They didn't conquer the base of Mikdash. They didn't even fight the Jews. This was not Shushan attacking the Jews. This was Haman exploiting the Persian apparatus to attack the Jews. But it was still part of the four kingdoms visiting the earth. And there was a historical message which Rishlakish elucidated, and there was also a moral message that Shushan showcased certain traits which were dangerous to the Jewish spirit. And by participating in that meal, they were exposing themselves to those values. And those values, Rabbi Yosef had already crystallized in the form of a bear. The constant eating and drinking. The size of the bear, Mesur Balim Bebasar, the outsized nature of Malchus Paras, trying to reach for more than you can properly maintain or internalize, and, and the establishment of law, custom, protocol, procedure, structure, architecture, bureaucracy, to try to control this unwieldy, unwieldy 127-province empire across the, the, the islands. 
and the lack of any moral value, just stifling any need under the heavy, heavy weight. Esther was trembling. Millions of people, that thousands of people are going to be killed and she can't enter the king's palace because protocol won't allow her. And then finally, the lack of peace, of quiet, of tranquility, of peace, just like a bear doesn't have menucha. So this is truly, truly fascinating association of Rishlakish. There's plenty more to elaborate.